So we're in a new sermon series on Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And as Thomas mentioned last week, we're going to explore a chapter every week for the next uh, 16 weeks, which means that our text for this morning is going to come from chapter 2. But before we read our text for today, I want to try and situate it for us and put it in context so that we can hear it. Uh, Thomas mentioned last week that, that Paul's letters were read out loud and they were heard by his audience more than they were carefully studied or read, at least at first. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to just listen to a passage from the end of, cha- uh, the, end of the first chapter before we go ahead and read chapter two. Now, if you're the, the kind of person that just wants to read uh, ahead, I just resist that urge uh, for just the next few minutes. It's, ex- it's an experiment. Listen now to the end of chapter 2. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to be honest and a little bit vulnerable this morning. How many of you, upon hearing that, immediately thought of how it directly applied to other people? (laughs) Go ahead. This is a safe place. To someone else, to your neighbors or coworkers, the, the culture, that kind of vague term we apply, <laughs> the world out there. Good. Now we're ready to hear what Paul has to say for us today. So I invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The word of the Lord. So you'll have to forgive me, I know that I set you up, or at least those of you who are brave enough to raise your hands. And to be honest, I'm kind of sorry. The truth is that Paul set all of us up, just as he set up his original audience. He's a a master rhetorician. We're gonna see this play out throughout the entire letter. The question that we have to wrestle with today is, What is Paul doing? Why does he set us up? What's he doing here at the beginning of chapter 2? And my thesis is is that for Paul, self-righteousness is as much a threat or even greater a threat 
to our faith as idolatry. In the ending to chapter one, Paul shows how the irreligious world, the immoral world, rejects God and exchanges God for the idol of self-gratification. He does this precisely to bait his audience who would have felt an inflated sense of themselves upon hearing it. The way that Paul describes the world, these irreligious people, would have had his Jewish Christian audience kind of roundly supporting it. He's riling them up. They would have been cheering him on. As a youngest child, uh, I had the privilege of watching and learning from all of the mistakes that my older brother and sister made. Of course, not so that I would avoid making them, but so that I could learn how to conceal them better from my parents, right? This is the privilege of being the youngest child. And as any youngest sibling will tell you, there's a sinful, uh, very sinful version of delight that uh, you feel when watching your parents hand out consequences to your older brother and sister, especially if they were particularly uh, cruel to you. And I think that this is a good way of understanding uh, how Paul's listeners might have been feeling or responding to his harsh words in chapter one. But then Paul turns his attention to them in chapter two. And what Paul is really up to is, is clearing the ground for his message of grace. Paul's message that we're gonna see throughout the entire book of Romans is that our salvation comes through receiving righteousness from God alone. And just as the idol of self-gratification is an obstacle to receiving this righteousness, so is the idol of self-righteousness. So this morning, uh, just in the brief time that we have, I wanna address two basic questions. First is, what is self-righteousness? You know, where does it come from? How do we identify it? And the second is, how do we actually become less self-righteous people? So first, what is self-righteousness? In his book, The Righteous Mind, uh, moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt uses this definition. It's a fairly straightforward definition of self-righteousness. Convinced of one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. Convinced of one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. Here's what else Haidt says about self-righteousness. An obsession with righteousness which inevitably leads to self-righteousness is the default human condition. It's a feature, not a bug. And according to Paul, he's not wrong about this either. Paul knows that when given the chance, we relish the opportunity to judge others because it makes us feel good. It's precisely what, is, uh, what makes it him able to set his listeners up. And yet, as we read in chapter two, the self-righteous condemn only themselves, right? Because by judging others, they place themselves in the position that belongs to God alone. Thus, the self-righteous are equally guilty of exchanging themselves for God. You might be thinking to yourself, you know, not so fast. Hold on. Don't we make judgments about people all the time? I mean, how can we possibly avoid judging other people? It's probably true that there, there is a good amount of people judging someone right now in this room. I guarantee someone's judging me right now, 
And here I think Hyde's definition helps us. Self-righteousness is about being convinced of our own righteousness in contrast to others. Right? Paul knows that his listeners will be taking delight and uh, pride in hearing his description of the irreligious in chapter 1. But I don't think he's condemning the judgments that we make in general. But judgment that leads to an inflated sense of one's own behavior and one's own standing before God. That is self-righteousness. That inflated sense of ourself that we get by comparing ourselves to other people. So, if self-righteousness is, is not just a bug, but a feature of our human condition, something that we all struggle with, how do we actually become self less self-righteous people? Right? Nobody wants to be self-righteous. And according to Paul, we become self-righteous by ignoring the mercy of God. Self-righteous person despises the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, Paul tells us. And another way we might translate this is that the self-righteous person presumes upon God's mercy, takes God's mercy for granted. So in order to see how we might become less self-righteous, maybe a better question that we should ask is how do we increase our capacity for God's mercy in our lives? How do we let it fill up in us so that it can act like an antidote to the poison of self-righteousness within us? So I just have three practices for becoming less self-righteous people that I want to describe. The first is we can observe the five-minute rule. We can observe the five-minute rule. In his new book, How to Think, Alan Jacobs tells a story about Jason Freed that you might have heard. Freed is the founder of the project management software company Basecamp. Anyway, as the story goes, Jason is at a, a conference listening to a talk, and he grew more and more agitated with the speaker's point of view the more that he listened, something that you might have, be familiar with, um, maybe literally right now. And when the talk was over, he rushed up to the speaker to immediately express his disagreement, which never happens to preachers. <laughs> never. So the speaker listened to his, his criticism, and then he replied, can you just give it five minutes? And Jacob says that Freed was surprised. He's taken aback. But then he realized the point and the point's value. He had heard something that he didn't agree with and immediately entered into what Jacobs calls refutation mode. And when you're in refutation mode, there's no way that you will listen to what someone has to offer to you. When there's no chance for listening, the chance for self-righteousness grows exponentially. So I wonder how many of us could benefit from observing the five-minute rule in our relationships, especially our online relationships. I know that I could. And I'm not saying that we can't have a legitimate point of view or we can't hold on to positions that are important to us. I think that we can even believe that we are right. But when these positions make us unable to listen to others, we are at great risk of self-righteousness. Great risk. 
So the first practice is to observe the five-minute rule. It's harder than you think. <laughs> Jacob's advice, though, too, is to, um, to get your body involved. Like, go for a walk. <laughs> uh, go pull some weeds. Uh, it's harder than you think, but try it out. Secondly, we can avoid virtue signaling. If you've never heard of virtue signaling, uh, virtue signaling is the practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. I know that's a mouthful, but you've all seen this and you've all seen it mostly on the internet. And once again, if you are thinking of all of the people who are sure uh, to call attention to their virtue regularly, that you interact with on a regular basis, you're, you're doing this wrong. You're missing the point. Only you know, only each individual can decide for themselves when they are virtue signaling. Only you can tell when you are expressing an opinion for the sole purpose of recognition from other people. But the next time that you think that you have to post something or say something, or put up a sign somewhere. Remember that you don't have to respond to what everyone else is responding to in order to signal your right-mindedness. You can give up on virtue signaling because the gospel of grace doesn't require you to have the right position on everything at every moment. I know it feels like you do in the 24-hour news, 24 news cycle that we are, have become accustomed to, but you don't have to. You are a person in process. You always have something to learn. And when you inevitably, and, and it is inevitable, that you will get it wrong, there's grace. There's grace and there is mercy enough for you to seek repentance. Which leads to the final practice, and maybe the most important. Pray this short and ancient prayer on a regular basis, a prayer that our Orthodox brothers and sisters pray repeatedly, over and over again. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What this prayer reminds us is that the gospel is not some vague philosophy of self-improvement. We live in perhaps the golden age of self-improvement philosophies, don't we? I mean, we're being sold constantly on the need to upgrade all parts of ourselves. One estimate of the self-help industry put it at $10 billion last year. And I, I admit that I, I love this genre of podcasts and books partly because I, I love learning about pretty much everything. But it's important for us as Christians to recognize the distinction between self-help and the gospel. Jesus does not say to us, improve thyself. The message we will hear repeatedly throughout the book of Romans is that if the world around us is focused on being saved by presenting to God a righteousness, the gospel of grace is about being saved through receiving from God a righteousness. As John Calvin summarized this letter, humanity's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, apprehended by faith. And if you're thinking that, I don't know, this seems to present a gloomy or defeatist picture of human beings, hear what I would say. 
I actually think it's not defeating to recognize that we are all sinners in need of grace, incapable of truly improving our situation before God. What's defeating and crushing actually, I think, is to expect that this power is within our reach and that we just haven't figured it out yet. To me, that, that is a lonely and despondent position to be in. Instead, hear the good news in Paul's words. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness. So when we pray this prayer, let us remember not to pray it from guilt or shame, but complete freedom with God's kindness in view. In the end, it's God's mercy that will transform our self-righteousness into faith. And as God's mercy fills up in us, my hunch is that we will find ourselves living in more compassionate, just, and gracious ways with our families, in our neighborhoods, at work, with people we might consider other, and who knows, maybe even on the internet. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.